welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last month, three U.S. Senators announced the launch of the Bipartisan Senate Caucus on Black-Jewish Relations. I sat down with Senators Jackie Rosen of Nevada, Tim Scott of South Carolina, and Cory Booker of New Jersey to discuss the mission of the new caucus. Here's a portion of our conversation. Senators, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you very, very much. Reinvigorating the Black-Jewish Alliance is that was at the bedrock of the civil rights movement. And it's key to combating racism, rising anti-Semitism, both here in America and around the world. And that's why today's announcement is so critical. The three of you have joined us here on the Global Forum stage to announce the first ever Senate Caucus on Black Jewish Relations. Could you share with our audience, please, each of you, what you hope to accomplish through this caucus? I would suggest the wisdom, Tim, of you and I yielding to Jackie first. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. And I want to tell you that uh, I'm so proud to be here uh, with Tim and Corey, because when um, I went and talked to them about this idea, there wasn't a hesitation for a second. And I'm just so excited to do this. The first time it's ever happened in the Senate. And I just know that we are going to have so many good conversations, positive things going forward. And we're going to show real leadership in this issue. And um, just very excited to announce this. So, Senators, why, why didn't you hesitate? For me, it's been a lifelong journey in many ways, uh, understanding and appreciating the, the parallel tracks that the Jewish community and the Black community have been on. If you think about it from a biblical perspective, four centuries of slavery in Egypt, and you think about the four centuries the African-Americans were enslaved, uh, there are tracks that are parallel and pain that creates promise and opportunity, the tragedies that became triumphs. It's a story that continues on, and for my life, um, for me, it seems it's just personal in that my some of my first mentors, uh, Larry Fordenberg, who uh, helped me you know, become a part of his uh, insurance agency and then gave me a piece of the pie and taught me not to work for someone, but work for yourself always. Or uh, Jerry Zucker, who, who, whose family became billionaires. He was one of my first guys who sat down with me when I wanted to go in the uh, restaurant business and said, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Thank God he did, by the way, because I went into the insurance business and, and did very well there. So I, uh, my, my first chief of staff was an observant Jew. My, my uh, consultant is still an observant Jew. So really, uh, my relationship has been has spanned 40 plus years. And this is an opportunity for us to weigh in on critical issues that face our nation and do it together. And thank you, Jackie, for your wisdom uh, and the, the friendship and the leadership that you're showing on behalf of not just the United States Senate, but on behalf of the nation, bringing all of us together. Thank you. And I'll just say, first of all, that I'll, I'll start where, where Tim ended there. Uh, just God bless Jackie for being the, the principal provocateur for creating this historic first ever caucus. Um, I'll be frank, it was, it was very hard to have a black Jewish caucus in the past because really weren't any blacks serving in the Senate. Uh, uh, 
Uh, I'm the fourth elected senator, a black senator in the history, but Tim was here first. He was appointed, then he won. And when Tim won, that became the first time in American history that two black elected senators were serving uh, at the same time. And what I will say about Tim, uh, uh, he's he's sort of a, a modest person. He, he was very clear about his past, but what he really struck me as just somebody when he got to the Senate is he, he became a champion of uh, issues surrounding Israel. And when he and I uh, saw some a bit of issues going on uh, uh, in the foreign policy world, he and I made a determination that, that, that to show a black commitment to the state of Israel, he and I did something that had never been done before. The two black members of the Senate uh, went out to Israel, uh, took tours of the, of the nation, met with uh, the leadership and, and more. So I know Tim's heart and we both are men of faith. I, I go to Bible study with Tim and uh, just to be in Israel with him and get to know him even more as a friend and see his commitment to the shared ideals of these two great Abrahamic faiths is uh, something that makes me even think this is more special to be with him in this coalition. And then finally, um, as many folks know that my my journey to Judaism uh, didn't start uh, as a as a senator. Uh, um, I've been studying Torah now on and off for more than 20 years. Uh, the Jewish faith, uh, with ha- which has been the center in many ways of some of the great black uh, activists uh, in American history. Um, if you look at most of Martin Luther King's major speeches, including his last, I've been to the mountaintop, they all are coming from the Torah, uh, from the Old Testament. If you go where King was slain at Lorraine Motel, it's words from the Torah that are written there, uh, the words of Joseph's brothers, behold, here cometh the dreamers, let us slay him and, and see what becomes uh, of, of the dream. And so I, I, I've been deeply influenced by the Jewish faith, uh, been very blessed uh, by that journey, and also know, as Tim does, our civil rights history from Rabbi Yochan Prince from Newark, who spoke right before King on the March on Washington, to Abraham Joshua Heschel, to even perhaps the most profound a testimony uh, from Tim and my faith, uh, as well as from the, the Jewish ideals of Hillel. If I'm not for myself, who am I? If I'm only for myself, what am I? Uh, uh, excuse me, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? But a Goodman, Cheney, and Schwarner who, who died together uh, in the civil rights movement, showing that the that kind of commitment and the kind of radical love that is at the core of both faiths. Thank you so much, Senator Booker. That that was a wonderful summation of, of why this makes sense. This caucus makes so much sense um, now. Senator Rosen, I want to go back to you and ask, I mean, this caucus, this caucus has a mission statement, right? And, and, if, and if so, could, could you share some of its key points? Well, I will tell you that, uh, and I'll just say one last thing is that, you know, I'm the third Jewish woman to be in the United States Senate. So you think the first two elected uh, black men to the United States Senate, the third Jewish woman, and here we are making history. And, you know, the reason that there are, um, there's a mission statement is because if you don't know where you're going, how are you going to get there? So our mission statement is really, really important because during the civil rights movement, like we they spoke, we all spoke about Black and Jewish Americans came together to fight racism, anti-Semitism, hate, and bigotry. So what is this caucus going to do? We're going to show leadership by getting together with our communities, with you all here today, allies and partners around our country, our faith-based leaders and other community leaders to talk about education, to have common conversations, to find out 
what we believe, the same beliefs we have, social action and social justice. My rabbi's father, uh, blessed memory, Sidney Axelrod, marched with Martin Luther King in the 1960s. And his son, who's my rabbi, uh, it brings a rich history to that, to my co home congregation. And so we wanna work to continue. This work is never done. It's gonna be ongoing. This is just the beginning. We're gonna keep doing it and hopefully those will keep following us because there's always more young people to come up that need to know what's going on, how to band together with allies and partners for social action and social justice. So you all have spoken about the long and storied history. Senator Booker, you talked about Rabbi, you mentioned Rabbi Heschel. Um, I had the opportunity to interview his daughter recently, and she talked about how her father really believed that the lives and futures of Black Americans and Jewish Americans were very closely intertwined. Can you speak to the degree of Black Jewish cooperation in Congress and, and also what each of you see in your states? What are the relationships you see in South Carolina and New Jersey and Nevada? Well, Tim, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, in South Carolina, uh, one of the things I'm excited about is that we're one of the leading states on uh, movements that stop the BDS movement. Uh, our state was the first to adopt legislation led by Alan Clemens. But within that state that we have strong, healthy relationships within the African-American uh, and Jewish communities. There was something a while back called Operation Understanding. It was uh, at least a regional program, if not nationwide, and it brought African-Americans and Jewish folks together in the 11th and 12th grade. They spent two years getting to understand and appreciate uh, each other's cultures, each other's faith, and they went to Charleston. Uh, they went to Al Atlanta, to Birmingham, Tuskegee, and D.C as a part of this program. And it, it's, it's those uh, seeds that have been sown throughout South Carolina that makes us such a strong place to see positive, healthy, uh, encouraging relationships. It's one of the reasons why, uh, as a senator, I, I sponsored the Anti-Semitism Act that was to change the definition for anti-Semitism on college campuses is because of the healthy relationship that I've watched grow over as I said, over 40 years. Uh, and that program, Operation Understanding, is kind of the icing on the cake. It's the best way to distill what a healthy relationship looks like within South Carolina. Uh, as I said, it's a program that's been around for a long time and extends beyond the borders of South Carolina. But it's that willingness to see ourselves and our kids participate in a program of, of understanding and appreciating the, the parallel universes that, that exist and how much they cross over, how much cross-pollinization has happened uh, throughout history. Uh, and I, that's probably the best example I can give on why it's so important and what South Carolina is doing about it. Senator Rosen? Well, I can tell you that Nevada is a diverse state. Uh, we have many communities that make up our one Nevada. And uh, unfortunately, um, we've had our share of tragedies. But what I do know is this, when times are good, Nevadans come together to celebrate because you see that, uh, uh, especially in the Las Vegas Strip, when things people are having a fun time and you've seen it when we've had a tragedy on that same Las Vegas Strip, when we came together as a community to overcome adversity. And this last summer, we did have a lot of protests over the police violence. And I was able to join with black leaders in Nevada, uh, our federal delegation, our state delegation, our governor, 
faith-based leaders so important. I'm actually uh, was a, a president of my synagogue in the past before I uh, before I was here, and I can tell you that there's uh, interfaith alliances. We're, Nevada is a small state, and so we're able to know each other. So these alliances really moved us forward. And so there's broad coalitions, just ADL, AJC, all across the board. We come together, we march together, we sing together, because one thing that we know for sure, and I want to talk to Senator Scott keeps bringing up 40 years. Well, you know, 40, somebody wandered 40 years in the desert, then they found out. Oh, yeah, wandering of 40 years, we have found a coalition. So there you go. It took that. Uh, we'll put that in there. But we I love know that, Jackie. That's right. Think about that. He wandered yeah. 40 years, and here we are. We found a home. And I can tell you that Black Americans are targeted for their race. Jewish Americans, most targeted for their religion. Yes. And we have to stop this. And when we stand shoulder to shoulder and say enough is enough, that's when the healing and positive change begins. And Senator Booker, what do you what do you see in New Jersey? Well, first of all, I, I'm a little upset because and I hate to put tension. Between a, between a black senator and a Jewish senator. But you notice how she dropped that she was president and, and I, of course, failed to try to get that title. Um, so I'm a little upset that there, uh, there's one president at least represented on this call uh, uh, of a great shul. And I had the pleasure of uh, giving tribute to her uh, recently and, and when she was honored by her own synagogue. So, um, and then she fails in the second grievance. This is the airing of the section. The second grievance is she didn't mention the most important black Jewish uh, bond in in the entire state of Nevada, at least from my perspective, and that is that my mom lives my mom lives in Nevada and is a is a good friend and a huge fan of her Jewish senator. So that relationship is perhaps uh, very critical. So, but I aired my grievances. I got it off my chest. I hope you feel some good Jewish guilt there. We noted. We noted. But look, uh, Jersey. Uh, my whole life story in New Jersey is about Black Jewish relations. Uh, my family was denied housing time and time again uh, in uh, in New Jersey when my parents were trying to move from here in D.C. I was just a baby. It was 1969. And this remarkable coalition of Blacks and whites, Christians and Jews in northern New Jersey set up a sting operation uh, to buy the house that I would eventually grow up in. In fact, they, the white couples kept posing as my parents, a white couple that, that been on, would have been on the house that my parents were denied on the day of the closing, my my dad and and the white couple didn't show up. My dad did, and a volunteer Jewish lawyer named Marty Friedman showed up, and Marty was punched in the face by the real estate agent. A Doberman Pinscher was signaled my dad, and uh, that's what uh, my parents raised me to understand what leaders, and in this particular case, Jewish leaders, uh, did for my family. The very entrance I had to my state, but it didn't stop there. You all know I was the mayor of Newark. The, the legendary Jewish diaspora in Newark is not just uh, spanned throughout the globe in, in great names like Philip Roth and others coming from Weekwake High School. But if you go to the Weekwake High School Alumni Association, which is to predominantly Jewish, and see what they do is they're back in uh, Weekwake High School, which is predominantly Black, and they're serving and they're uh, making contributions. When I was mayor of the city of Newark, tremendous Jewish engagement, philanthropy came from people who did not forget where they came from. Uh, now as a senator, I, I have an entire state where I work closely with a number of Jewish organizations all across 
the Jewish uh, uh, sort of spectrum from uh, from uh, this great organization all the way to um, great Orthodox rabbis, Lubavitch rabbis, conservative reform rabbis who really are living the call of the Jewish uh, faith to, to heal the world, to tikkun alam, who are engaged in Jewish issues but understand that uh, their destiny is interwoven with the destiny of others. And so uh, my whole life has been uh, uh, the, this experience over and over again, where this tie between our communities, as James Baldwin wrote uh, uh, about the arrest of one of his friends, if they come for you in the morning, they'll come for us at night. And, and this understanding that we are locked and that hate, um, especially as we see rises in anti-Semitism, the 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 the, the hate uh, anti-Semitism racism they're all fruit of the of the same poisonous tree and we all have an obligation to do something about it and and the last thing I'll say which I'm really proud of in many ways blacks and Jews have been a, a very strong conscience of this entire country um, helping this nation to live up to its democratic ideals but by being challenged by those who are often marginalized or excluded we've tried our communities have a history of working to make this country see itself, its truth, its beauty, its wonder. And uh, I, I'm just excited to be in partnership with uh, 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 this coalition you see before you uh, from different political perspectives and different faiths and different races uh, that we can uh, do our best to make America live up to its promise of a multicultural inclusive democracy. And that song sung during the high holiday, May my house be a house of prayer for many nations. That That is a Jewish ideal, but it's also a very American ideal. Well put. Senator Rosen, Senator Booker, Senator Scott, thank you for assembling this historic Senate caucus on Black-Jewish relations. And thank you for sharing the news of it on the virtual Global Forum stage. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute. And even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. It's been more than a decade since Israel was branded the startup nation. In the years since, we have seen still more successes come out of Israel, like Google's billion-dollar acquisition of navigation company Waze, Intel's $15 billion acquisition of self-driving car technology company Mobileye, and the NASDAQ initial public offering last month of team management software company Monday.com, which now has a market cap of $10 billion. Joining us to talk about the state of the startup nation is Barack Rabinowitz, managing partner of F2 Venture Capital. Barack, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sefi. It's great to be here. Now, your job as managing partner at F2 gives you a bit of a bird's eye view on the present state of things in the startup nation. So let's start with your perspective. How is Israel's startup economy doing? Are there more Wazes and Mobileyes and Monday.coms out there today? Definitely. There are now more unicorns from Israel than all of Europe combined. At last count, more than 60 Israeli companies that have become billion dollars or more in valuation. That's one part of the equation. Of course, the other part is, are they actually generating value and revenue 
an impact. And I definitely think they are. And the founders are aiming higher than ever before. That's kind of always been one of the questions I think about the kind of startup nation vibe around Israel is that so many of these companies are kind of the exit is the goal, right? They're determined to, you know, create something and then get rid of it in as productive a way as possible or financially beneficial a way as possible. So are we seeing more of a shift toward kind of homegrown Israeli companies, you know, working to build themselves up bigger rather than just get out and hand it over to an American company or, or something else? I do think we're seeing more Israeli founders that are going the distance. And what happened is in the 90s, you had the first generation of founders. Up until the 80s, Israel was a socialist, really a socialist economy. The Labor Party and the unions had all the power. Nobody had real wealth except industrialists and other folks in the shipping business and other pockets of the economy. And then you had the tech revolution and you had Israel's first tech millionaires and you couldn't hold it against them. They get an offer to sell the company for $100 million. It'd be crazy not to take it. But that has changed. You're seeing the repeat entrepreneurs coming back a second time. And you're also seeing the entry of growth stage investors who are fueling liquidity for founders in the form of secondary transactions and opening up new opportunities for founders to take a little bit of money off the table and, and as I said, go the distance. One might think that, you know, you mentioned Israel as a socialist country. Not only that, it was an agrarian kind of socialist country. One might think that a big chunk of Israel's startup sector would be focused on agritech, on defense companies, cybersecurity companies. And indeed, there is an element of that as well. But how is it that the country kind of has, you know, team management software and self-driving car technology, as we mentioned before, you know, what was it that led Israelis, Israeli founders, kind of away from the country's national areas of expertise? Well, I think you put it correctly that the technology industry starts with the military, and that starts with us living in a hostile neighborhood and being at a severe numerical disadvantage. So we have to compete with our brains, and that manifests itself in technology. I think what happened is the needs of the world collided with the areas that Israel's good at. You know, yes, the military develops defense technology, but you still need large teams to collaborate, to develop those software solutions and hardware solutions. And all of a sudden they realized, you know, the soldiers go in at 18 and leave at 21. They were grouped into small teams and given massive tasks and unlimited resources. And they take what they worked on and go and do startups. You know, there was a market waiting for them, not just for the end results in defense, but for the enterprise software that they were developing along the way. It's been a hell of a few years for Israel, a war, pandemic, highs and lows, and an election cycle that seemed like it would never end. A few months ago, you wrote a piece in Calculist about how all of that actually wasn't showing up in Israel's macroeconomic metrics. You attributed that to resilience. What did you mean by that? I like to quote Rocky Balboa as much as I can. He's my childhood hero. <laughs> and he said, I think in Rocky Five or Rocky Six that it's not about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that's how winning is done. And if you think about startups, you start out with an idea, and if you're lucky, you raise money, but that's an idea until you collide with the market and inevitably have to pivot and adapt, and most folks give up. But Israel's faced with these esoteric threats every few years, and they don't have a choice to give up or we'd all be dead. 
So it's a great quality that translates directly to startup life and young founders come out of the military with this mentality that failure is not an option. Where else do we see that quality of resilience in Israeli life? I mean, there is a quality of chutzpah, which is um, some sort of combination of resilience and confidence. You see it in everyday life from the minutia of calling a repairman to fix your air condition and he comes and says, well, it's cold in here and, and dismisses the problem. So I think there's just a proportion, a sense of proportion about what's important and a willingness to live with, you know, things being imperfect, which is the hacker way. How do you think that resilience is inculcated in Israelis? Is it as simple? I don't know if there's anything simple about this, but is it as simple as like, being under fire every few years? Or are there other elements to like an Israeli upbringing? You're an American Israeli, you grew up in America, at least most of the time, I think. But when you see Israeli kids growing up today, what is teaching them resilience? I think that in Israel, there is a tremendous sense of national identity and patriotism that gets lost in other places. Very, very intense combustion engine here of people from all walks of life. There are very heated discussions, debates, important fractures in society between religious and secular and Arabs and Jews. But at the end of the day, these wars that flare up every few years brings everyone together, of course, on the backdrop of history, where Israel was founded right on the back of the Holocaust, can't be ignored. And the fact is that most Israelis don't have a second passport. This is it. And it's a small country with currently a population of just under 10 million people. It's a hot country, so we're all outside mixing and mingling. And I think that underlying resilience as a nation is patriotism and a sense of purpose and impact that you have here every day. When I think about politicians in America and Europe, there isn't much crossover. You know, just off the top of my head, there isn't much crossover between the startup sector and politics and government. I, I don't think we've seen a major politician kind of come out of that realm in the US and Europe. Of course, Israel's new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, made millions working in cybersecurity startups. The former mayor of Jerusalem near Barkat, who's one of the leading contenders, should there be a kind of primary in the Likud party to replace former Prime Minister Netanyahu. He, too, is a very successful startup entrepreneur. Even Netanyahu, I mean, maybe this is a stretch, but, you know, his degree is from MIT, right? There's kind of a technologist element to him. What is it about Israel? Is there a veneration of startup founders that those people have kind of a glide path into politics? Is it just that there are more of them per capita than in other countries? What is it about Israel as opposed to the U.S. or France or Japan, where we're seeing startup entrepreneurs make this transition into politics. And there's also Ehud Barak, who has gone on to a career in technology, co-founding companies, investing. I think that startups is the national sport. Um, <laughs> you know, we're known as Startup Nation since the book came out. And um, it goes back to the military where Parents want their kids to serve in the 8200, the intelligence branch, which is the largest branch of the military, because they know two things. One, maybe they won't be physically exposed on the front lines, but also it's a more important stamp here than a degree from Harvard. So that translates down. If you go into the Army at 18, then you already got to be thinking about that at 
high school and even before to start dabbling in programming. So if you're touching a population in their childhood all the way through their young adulthood, um, and as I said, the tech millionaires now, I think Israel has more millionaires per capita than anywhere else. That's a recent stat that I heard. Tesla recently entered and you see Tesla's popping up everywhere. You know, in other countries like maybe Brazil, the football players are the heroes because that's the path or dream to wealth. Here, it's tech. And you see the examples of the millionaires or billionaires, and that's where you're aiming from childhood. So I think it's a very unique ecosystem in that respect. What policy implications might that have, right? How do startup entrepreneurs, technologists, et cetera, how do they see the political sphere and the policy sphere differently from, you know, lawyers and more kind of buttoned up businessmen? How might that kind of ethos bleed over into the way the country is run? I think there's two aspects. One, we have policy to thank. There was the Yozma program in, I think, the 90s, which was a government-sponsored model to stimulate VC investment in Israel that seeded the first wave of VCs, that seeded the first wave of startup investing. And that's now a program that has been attempted to replicate elsewhere in the world. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have what we call the tech bubble here, which is anyone that works in tech generally tends to be more left-leaning or central for sure. And there's a lot of frustration. Why does the government, why is it held back by ultra-religious parties who think very conservatively and have conservative views, even backward views on gender and other aspects that are not at all aligned with the modern way that we build organizations or view the world? So I think most People in tech are disenfranchised with government and policy, but the recent elections are a real ray of hope for all of us that change can happen. And as you said, we even have a prime minister who comes directly from the, the startup world. So we'll see. I'm optimistic for the next few years. Even in the last government, there was a move toward massive investment in Israel's Arab sector. And I think the kind of sense was it's the last kind of, I'm going to try to make a car analogy and I'm going to fail spectacularly, but it's kind of the last engine. It's the last motor that's maybe like underperforming that could be driving the country forward. And if just a little bit more fuel was injected, then it could really move things forward. Do you think that that is something that we're likely to see continue in the years to come? And do you buy that premise overall? Well, I think there's a lot of work to do with the religious community, with uh, more women in tech, women in VC. Certainly the Arab population and villages. We just invested in a startup called Hat, which is doing uh, food delivery to the infrastructureless populations that you find in Arab villages, people who don't have zip codes. Neat thing there is that you have this problem throughout the Middle East. So Israel can be the launch pad for a technology company that's already 50 people, but could cater to Egypt, could cater to eventually Saudi Arabia. So it's very, very optimistic and hopeful. Also, the number one bottleneck for Israeli startups is tech talent. And they're looking at Ukraine and Georgia and other far off places. But we have a lot of talent right in our backyard in Ramallah and in other places. So it's just logical that we should promote innovation and investment in these areas. What promise does regional cooperation hold? Around the Abraham Accords, there was 
some news even that Israel and the UAE might be kind of launching collaborations around these issues. Is that kind of glitz? Is that for show or is that for real? I was in Abu Dhabi and Dubai two weeks ago. It's definitely real. What I heard from them is they're very excited, very serious, very sophisticated investors over there who look to Israel for solutions to shared problems like energy, water, and cybersecurity and other market needs and opportunities. But that immediately on the back of the Abraham Accords, a flood of Israelis went over there hoping to get like quick checks, you know, quote unquote, dumb money. And I think on their side, perhaps they retreated, you know, and realized that they better be careful and cautious. And just like with any population, there's degrees of quality in the people you're meeting from Israel's side. And so they're going to proceed on their own timelines as far as economic investment development. But there have been very exciting announcements and there's been ambassadors shared and embassies opened. And there are multiple direct flights just two and a half hours from Tel Aviv to Dubai. So that thing doesn't happen just on a fluke. This is really thought out and important investments and initiatives for the long term. Two weeks ago sounds like an absolutely brutal time temperature-wise to be in the Emirates, but <laughs> I'm sure that in a country like that, they've figured out ways to spend as little time outdoors as possible. One final question for you. Our listeners here at People of the Pod believe in supporting Israel in lots of different ways, including financially. If someone is listening right now and they want to kind of put their money where their mouth is, they want to invest in Israel's startup sector, you know, how would you recommend someone go about doing that, whether they have $50 or, you know, $50 million that they want to put into Israel? I think with $50 or more, you can directly invest in Wix and Monday.com and Checkpoint and all these great companies are going public right now. You don't have to invest in all of them. Choose the one you like. But, you know, these companies go public after seven to 10 year journey of development, of optimization, of pivot, of bringing world-class talent, and in addition to the thresholds that the market set for taking them public, NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. So you're gonna be investing in quality companies, and I think if you look at the performance, these companies have outperformed the general indices. So that's one easy way. Beyond that, if you start to look at, you know, there have been indices for Israel, for example, I know ARK, an index fund, has one. But if you look at the underlying companies there, you start to see what it's composed of. And it's really companies trading in the local exchange here. And it includes like the cell phone operator. And so my point is, it's very important. The intentions are good and the excitement is important. But, you know, people shouldn't be investing for charity. They should apply the same filters as they would for any serious investment in the U.S. So choose good partners and look at things together. There is our crowd, which is the world's largest crowdsourced equity investment platform, and they have a very professional and robust filtering process. And then on the end of the spectrum, there are venture capital funds like ours, which you know do few investments, but highly, highly qualified. There's also on the nonprofit sector, I just discovered an organization called Israel, which organizes, they have 6,000 volunteers from Israel in all aspects of emergency response, so medical trauma, etc. And whenever there's a crisis in the world, like the COVID crisis in India right now, they organize teams of Israeli volunteers to go and really dive in and help, whether it's a tsunami in Japan or uh, stranded hikers in Nepal. So there are many exciting nonprofits 
the AJC obviously makes a huge impact as well to get involved. Israel Aid has also been a longtime partner of AJC, and we've been a proud sponsor of their very important work around the world. So that's near and dear to our hearts as well. Barack Rabinowitz, thank you so much for giving us this tour of Israel's tech sector. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Sefi. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about revolution. My son Max has been attending Greek mythology camp this week. He has come home with heroic tales of conquering titans, armed with styrofoam swords and cardboard shields, and reading every Greek myth he can get his hands on. I have reservations about my little peacemaker aspiring to be fierce and win battles, but then I'm reminded that life is not fair. He needs to know it's heroic to fight for what he believes, and frankly, swords and shields made of cardboard are a lot better than guns. I say this with another young Max in mind, 20-year-old Max Solomon Lewis, a student at the University of Chicago with thick, wavy brown hair, was riding the L train home from his internship last Friday when a stray bullet came through the train car window and struck him in the neck. He came out of surgery paralyzed from the neck down and on a ventilator. Cognitively aware, he told his family and doctors by blinking his eyes that he wanted to be taken off life support. He died on July 4th which happens to be the day my son Max, with thick, wavy brown hair, was born in Chicago seven years ago. But Max Solomon Lewis was not the only innocent bystander killed by a stray bullet this year. Fifteen-year-old Damia Smith was killed in the backseat of a car in January. They weren't all in Chicago, either. In Astoria, Queens, Gedalia Valinas, a 37-year-old mother of two, died less than a block from her home when she stepped out to go to the drugstore. In Minneapolis... Nine-year-old Trinity Audison Smith was hit while jumping on a trampoline at a friend's birthday party. In Doraville, Georgia, 25-year-old Carmen Lee was struck while driving. This past holiday weekend alone, at least 230 people were killed in more than 500 shootings across the country. Some of them targets, some of them like Max, Gudalia, Trinity, and Carmen, just unlucky. More reminders that life is not fair. When someone dies, in the Jewish tradition, we often say, may their memory be for a blessing. I only recently learned that it actually refers to the blessings that live on after a person is gone as a result of their good deeds. Two years ago, during a demonstration in Israel to recognize victims of domestic violence, a new phrase was coined, may their memory be a revolution. The phrase has since been appropriated here in America to commemorate the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and in the context of Black Lives Matter to commemorate the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. There is nothing blessed about the way these lives were ripped away from us, writes Rachel Stommel, a writer and women's rights activist in Israel. Their memorial calls for identifying and confronting the deep-seated conditions that gave rise to their murders, deliberately dismantling them, and then generating active justice in their steed. How many lives will be ripped away from there to be meaningful, fundamental change, for Americans to face reality, confront our history of racism, address the systemic inequities, and acknowledge that gun violence does not affect just the bad guys with guns. It threatens all of us. Cardboard shields and swords will not protect us. Heroes might. Max Solomon Lewis. May his memory be a revolution. The Tokyo Olympics begin in a couple of weeks, and to help us prepare... Our friends at JTA have released a list of all the Jewish Olympians to cheer on. 
representing five countries and competing in 12 events from basketball and baseball to canoeing and even race walking. This is one impressive group of Semites. There's legendary WNBA star Sue Bird, one of the most dominant basketball players of all time, and already a four-time gold medalist for Team USA, back at age 40, for what will likely be one last victory. There's Linoy Ashram, the rhythmic gymnast who JTA calls Israel's best chance for winning a medal. Ashram is a world champion rhythmic gymnast competing in her first Olympics, and contrary to the stereotype of Russian gymnastic dominance, is not a Russian-Israeli, but a half-Greek, half Yemeni one. Diego Schwartzman is the great-grandson of a Holocaust survivor who fled to Argentina. Now he'll compete as one of the best tennis players in the world in his first Olympics. The number two women's beach volleyball duo in the world includes American Jew Alex Kleinman. The first-ever Olympic surfing competition will feature Israeli Anat Lelior. The greatest paddler of all time is Australian Jew Jessica Fox, who hopes to add a gold medal in canoeing to her silver and bronze ones from previous games. In the last Olympics in Rio, Israeli judoka Ori Sasson won bronze and made headlines when an Egyptian opponent refused to shake his hand. He won another bronze, as it were, when he placed third in this season of Hazamer Bamasecha, the masked singer, in which he showed off his pipes while dressed as a falafel sandwich. Incidentally, I didn't realize what the Masked Singer actually was until I watched the clip of Sasson's performance linked in the JTA article, and I just have to say, what a show. Ethiopian-Israeli Maru Teferi will compete in his second Olympic marathon, and his wife, Salam, who isn't Jewish but will also be representing Israel, will compete in her first. Together, they will make up the first married couple to represent the Jewish state at the Olympics. America, Israel, Argentina, Australia, those are all among the top 10 largest Jewish populations in the world. So it's not odd, maybe, to discover that they have Jews on their Olympic teams. But Japan has just a thousand Jews. So it's remarkable that one of them, Japanese-American Avi Schaefer, will play on the country's Olympic basketball team. There are others, and there are several Jewish Paralympians to cheer on later in the summer as well. As usual, I'll be watching and cheering for great stories, astounding feats, and lots and lots of medals for the U.S., Israel, and Jews around the world. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.